So I'll ask you a question. Um, have you heard this before? That the longer two people are married, the more they look like each other? For some, that's really good news. For others, you're like, oh, great. Here's what science is finding. And they've actually done these facial kind of things. It's we actually marry a mirror. That the person that we choose mostly looks very much like us. So it's not that, hey, we look more and more like each other. It's actually we began by marrying someone that had very similar things to us. It's not just with marriage. Think for a moment about the people that you're friends with. Think about them. What do they like to do? What kind of clothes do they wear? What are their political views? What's their education level? And what's their social status? What are their pastimes? Think about all those things about your friends and then try to collapse it into one person. Who's that person? It's me. That's who it is. That I choose to be around people that are like me. That's what we do. So the old saying, opposites attract, is totally untrue. Opposites annoy us. So we choose people that are like us. That's what we do. We tend to do that. And so what happens when we keep choosing people like us is we form what I call a tribe. You just become this kind of tribe. You have that tribal identity and it just kind of forms around what you are. And people do it for the dumbest of things. Like the car they drive. I drive a Chevy. I drive a Ford. I drive a Dodge. And then... Some people, no one here, get a little sticker on the back of their car that has a small person using the bathroom on the other brands, right? (laughs) Saying, everything else is that. We're the right people because we drive Fords or Chevys or Dodges. We do it for sports teams. Beavers versus, it's not really a, when it's 175 to two, it's like me playing my four-year-old Myron. So it's not really a rivalry anymore, but still, we, we get in our camps. Or Trump versus anti-Trump. That's tribal warfare right there. People get out their guns and spears and want to kill each other. Like politics to me is a new religion. That we determine people like where they stand on the spectrum of religion based on their, their stance on politics now more than really their stance on Jesus. It's amazing to me. And here's what I know. I have friends on both sides. I have a friend who... He thinks Republicans are warmongering individuals that could care less about anyone and will make money in any way possible. And he loves Jesus. He's raising a brilliant family and he is impacting our community for Christ. And then over here, I have a buddy who thinks that Democrats are socialist pinkists, that they could, uh, that their whole design is to give condoms and drugs to little children Right? And they would love for our country to be ruled by ISIS and for all of us to read the Quran. And he loves Jesus and he's raising a great family and he is impacting our community. In fact, he teaches a weekly Bible study where he talks about a lot of that kind of stuff. <laughs> right? Different ends, both love Jesus. I think we've got to be very careful of how we categorize, especially on politics. But we just, it's our tendency. Our tendency is to be 
divisive. It's to us versus them, in versus out, okay? That's in all of us. Now, rewind the clock 2,000 years to Jews who for 1,500 years had been perfecting in versus out. They could tell instantly if you were in or out. What'd you do Saturday morning? Did you go to Sabbath? Okay, you're in. You didn't? We shun you. What'd you order? Like all their kosher rules was a way of maintaining cultural identity and actually not even eating meals with other people because you'd eat the wrong kind of food. So as, what'd you eat? What'd you order? Okay, you're in, you're out. Their clothing. They would sew, if you were a good Torah observant Jew, you would sew a blue ribbon in the bottom of your robe. And what it did is it signaled to everybody on the street, aha, you're in, you're in. You're in the in crew. Do we still do that in church? Decide who's in and out? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody about another person's salvation? If you think that person is saved? Well, he does some good things, but I saw him drink a beer with his pizza. (laughs) I don't know, right? He's in church almost every Sunday, but he drives a Maserati, so no way, he is not in. Right? We do these things where we're, very, we're still very tribal. We're in versus out. It's been in all of us. It starts in grade school with cool kids and geeks and it never stops. Just expands and expands. Okay, welcome to Acts chapter 10. Because in Acts chapter 10, what Jesus is gonna do here is amazing. You have Peter who is a megachurch pastor. 10 years he's been leading at least a church of 10,000, maybe 20,000 people. Before that, for three and a half years, he walked with Jesus and watched how Jesus interacted for three and a half years. He's got 13 and a half years of solid Christianity. And yet in Acts chapter 10, there's a racial barrier that he has been using to exclude people, put them on the outside that Jesus has to help him over. It's quite amazing. So we're gonna watch this unfold and try to apply it to our lives, okay? So Acts chapter 10, verse one. We'll meet the cast. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now, we read that and it means nothing to us. But please, for a moment, think about how a Jewish person would relate to a Roman soldier. Rome was the occupying force inside of Israel. They were taxing the people to death. They had, at this point, rule had been almost 100 years of Roman rule. They had crucified tens of thousands of Jewish people because of multiple revolts, because of problems, because of wars. That's this guy. So a better way to think of it is almost like, think about World War II, occupied France and a Nazi captain. Might be a nice guy, doesn't matter. He's a Nazi captain and you have killed and destroyed my people, right? So that's who this dude is. So he's introduced, very importantly, he's introduced. He's a big dude in the Roman army, right? So he's now 
ministered to by an angel. The angel says, go send for Peter. He's down a day and a half journey away in Joppa and bring him back up. Okay, so then we, the, the camera pans over down to where Peter's at, verse nine. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so this is the people that Cornelius has sent, two Gentiles and a soldier. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry. I have that verse underlined in my Bible. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. You ever sit down, man, I'm gonna really pray today. Boy, I'm hungry. <laughs> right? I love it. Peter's so human. And then he's like, hey, what's the way fixing the lunch? Back to praying. He falls asleep. I'm like, that is such me, man. Peter, I love Peter. He disappears in chapter 12 and I miss him. Every time I'm like, oh, because Paul just seems like a superhero. Peter, kind of like me. So he became hungry, wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. That's a nice way of saying he's snoozing. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Okay, so kosher rule is you don't eat these kinds of food. Shrimp, crab, there's all kinds of rules. So uh, bats are on that list. That's my biggest struggle. Man, Lord. So there's all that. There's bats in there. There's lizards in there. There's everything you can't eat. And he's told, rise, kill, and eat. So he's gonna break two commands. He's gonna eat the wrong kind of food. And in kosher food, you don't eat meat with the blood in it. You have to kosherize it and cook it thoroughly so there's no blood in it. So he'll break two commands right there. So he's like, hold on. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. So Peter, Peter is a successful pastor. Chapter nine ends with him doing incredible things. He goes on this circuit. He preaches the gospel of Jesus. People are being saved. He heals somebody and he resurrects a dead woman, right? You can work up an appetite doing that. So I can see why he's hungry and tired. So he decides to take a vacation goes to his buddy, Simon the Tanner, who has oceanfront property, and he's hanging out there. Good friend to have. Well, he's there. He's up on the roof, falls asleep in the sun, and he sees this sheet come down with all the wrong kinds of food, like a bacon avocado sandwich. He's like, boy, I'd like to eat that, but I can't. No, three times he does it. And now he's wondering, did I pass or fail? God told me to do this. I didn't do it three times. I remember the number three. This just rings in my head. Like I denied Jesus three times and that was bad. So this number three, I don't know. So he's sitting there perplexed. He hears a knock on the gate. They're asking for him. These two Gentiles and the soldier sent from Cornelius. So we pick up the story again. 
Verse 19. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? So imagine this now. He comes downstairs, he opens the door, and there standing are two Gentiles. They're the wrong kind of people. And then there's a Nazi with a gun. And he's like, what are you guys doing? Why do you want me, right? So they tell him about the story about Cornelius, about the vision, about the angel. And then verse 23 says, so he invited them to be his guests. Whose house is he in? Simon the Tanner's house. Yeah, you guys, come on, stay here. I can imagine Simon the Tanner getting home from work, comes in and he's like, what in the world? Why is there a Nazi in my kitchen, right? And Peter's like, it's fine. You know, I invited him to stay the night. You did what? It's okay, I had a vision. I don't care. I had a vision too, all of us being slaughtered. Why is he in my house? I love Peter. So night comes, they get up, they leave, verse 24. The following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter had entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. And he talked with them and went in and found many persons gathered. Now listen very carefully to this verse. It's, it's unbelievable to me. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Do you see how offensive that is? Right? He's, I mean, that's, he's so steeped in this in versus out thing, he doesn't even know how offensive he just was. So I'll try to put it in 21st century language. It'd be like a white guy going into a black man's home and being like, you know, I'm really not supposed to hang out with people like you, but uh, God showed me that I shouldn't call you unclean. I'd be like, bro, I hope you kiss your wife goodbye because it's goodbye. That's what's happening right now, right? That's what he just did. But it's so ingrained in him, this us versus them mentality. But here's the money verse. He gets it. So verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. I got it. But in every nation, the word nation there is ethnos. From where we get ethnicities or ethnic groups. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable. Okay, I'm putting this all together. The vision, these three people, I'm putting it together. My in versus out mentality is wrong. Okay, so he begins to preach the gospel. Wednesday, we'll get to this, we'll talk about it. He doesn't even make it to the money part of the gospel. When in the middle of his preaching, God's spirit fills all these people and they start speaking in tongues. And Peter's like, well, okay, obviously they can be saved. So then they get baptized. They get baptized. He goes back home. And when he goes home, there's all these people that are like, you did what? Who got saved? They can't be saved. He has to defend himself. And then eventually what Peter just says is this, God did it, I didn't. I mean, God did it. I was just sitting there talking and then all of a sudden God's spirit fell on them. I, I didn't do it, God did it, right? So brilliant. 
And then the sequence is super important. At the end of chapter 11, we're introduced to this church. It's a church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch is brilliant. Well, Antioch was, it was the third largest city in Rome. It was a massive city. And it had been built, it actually had quadrants and there were walls dividing out the different groups because they didn't get along. So there'd be the Greek group and the barbarian group and the Roman group and the African group and the Jewish group. And they just, they separated themselves. But all of a sudden the gospel comes into Antioch and people are literally climbing over walls to get to the church. Like, hey man, this is something's happening there. And it grows and it thrives and it's brilliant. It's inclusive. And so all the people in the city are like, what is the deal with that thing? What do we call them? We can't call them Greeks or Jews or barbarians or Africans. What in the world do we call this eclectic group of people? You know what they call them? Christians for the very first time in Acts 11 verse 26, this crazy group of people that are coming, climbing walls to get together that had never been seen before in that city. They said, we gotta have a name for them. Let's call them Christians. I love that. There's a move right now in certain circles to not use the word Christian. Like it's not good. So I'm a believer or I'm a Christ follower or I'm just a Jesus follower. Man, when I know the history of the word Christian, I say, I'm a Christian. I love that word. Oh, no partiality. Climb walls to get in. Ah, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. So now you would think, Peter gets it, right? 13 and a half years with Jesus. Okay, this whole event happens. He's good. His prejudices, his us versus them mentality, those people, it's all gone. He's fixed, right? Sorry. Turn with me to Galatians chapter two. So this is, advance the clock, eight years probably, somewhere five to eight years. Five to eight years later, after these events, here's what happens. Galatians two, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is the Latinized of Peter. So he's at Antioch, that brilliant church in chapter 11, where people are climbing walls to get together. They first called Christians, because what do you call this group of people that are so crazy? We used to call them Jews, because they're all Jewish. But now it's this eclectic mix of every nation, every tribe. Wow, what do we call them? Christians. He goes to that church. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. There's one party I don't want to go to. (laughs) And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, here's what happens. Peter, he's the main dude in Jerusalem at this point make a church pastor, 20,000 people, whatever it is. He decides to go visit the church at Antioch. Now the Jerusalem church is Jewish flavored, which is fine. Goes up to Antioch, which is this mix and it's a different flavor. Gets there, they're having an agape feast. Uh, we, well, some people today would call it a potluck. I don't use the word potluck uh, because I don't like luck when I'm eating other people's food. <laughs> Good luck with that one, man. Ow, my spleen, no thanks. And even pot and food, the combo, maybe I don't like that either. So I say multi-choice dinner. So they're at this multi-choice dinner. 
they're eating away, and all of a sudden, you have Peter with just bacon and ham and shrimp and crab, all this unkosher food, and he's loving it. He's sitting down with the Gentiles. He's hamming it up with them, just enjoying it. When all of a sudden, this crew comes in from James, the circumcision party. And they were the group that said this, based on the food that you eat, it makes you more spiritual. So this is the kind of person that says, if you eat lettuce and kale, it will get you closer to God. Do you know people like that today? They still exist. When I talk to them, I say, if you wanna be close to God, drink a six pack of Red Bulls a day and you'll be with him in no time. That gets you closer to God. Food has no spiritual value. Nutritionally, yes, totally, man. Spiritually, no. Eating or abstaining doesn't make Jesus love you more or closer to him, okay? So that's his crew. They're in there, arms crossed, looking at Peter with his plate piled up with all the wrong kinds of food. So what Peter does is he just drops his plate, leaves the table, and goes over in the corner with the circumcision party. Some of the other Jews see that and like, well, he's the main dude. He's like the mega church pastor. I'm going too. Even this guy named Barnabas, who's like the most encouraging, nice guy in the world. He gets caught in up. He leaves too. And so now you have this incredible kind of tension in the church. So what does Paul do? Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said, deceive us before them all. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? History tells us, Paul, small guy, Peter, giant guy. So you've got little Paul coming up to him in front of this big feast where everybody's like kind of divided up and there's all this tension. He just sticks his finger in Peter's chest and says, you're wrong. And how does he do it? He doesn't say, hey, you're a racist or you're a hypocrite. He says, you're not walking in line with the gospel. He uses the gospel to say, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is incorrect. It's the word orthopedeo. Ortho, we get orthodontist, straight, padeo, walk. You don't have a straight walk after the gospel. I love that. He lays the gospel over him and says, you're wrong because of that. If we have in versus out mentalities, if we have those people kind of things, I think the gospel would say to us, you're not in line online. And this happens inside of a church. There's difference of opinion inside of a church. Have you ever noticed that? People have different opinions in church. So what do you do with somebody that you differ when you have an opinion on something in the church? Here's what I think. I think church is like marriage. Ephesians 5.32 says it is. If I have a difference with my wife, I'm not calling the divorce attorney. I'm not on speed dial saying, oh, you couldn't believe this. Why? Because I love her. And my love outweighs the difference. So I'll give you an analogy. It's actually one that happened. So 
When I was growing up, I didn't realize this, but we had a theology of toothpaste. And it was, this is how you squeeze a toothpaste tube. You squeeze from the bottom, you get just enough, and then you put the cap back on and you don't put the cap on so it just smears out at the bottom of the cap. None of that was acceptable. And it was rigorous at my house. We held the line, squeeze from the bottom, tube cap on, no mess. And what I learned was, that was actually a generational theology. Because my grandma came out when I was about 10, this is 1982, and she brought with her gifts. Some of the gifts were these little clamps that fit on the bottom of a toothpaste tube and you just push the clamp up. It made it just brilliantly smooth, perfect. And then she brought these flip tops before flip tops were common that you could reuse every time and you could no longer have to lose the cap. So it was just like, brilliant. I'm like, okay. So I had a very, very, very strict toothpaste theology. I get married. My wife was from a different denomination. Her theology on toothpaste, very different than mine. Her theology was squeeze wherever you want, just get stuff out. And then if the cap, if you put it back on, great. If you don't, who cares, right? So it didn't take long for me to realize, hmm, something needs to change here. So I did what all husbands do in those situations. I sat down my wife and corrected her theology. Sweetie, this is how we do things here, right? And she's so sweet and so kind. She's like, okay, all right, yeah, that's awesome. That is the right way to do it. And that lasted for about two days. Morning number three, I wake up and there it looks like a baby had grabbed the hold of a banana and it was just squeezed all over the place. And I went, ugh, I did not speed dial the divorce attorney. You know why? Because I decided, you know what's more important? That she brushes her teeth. <laughs> Not how she gets her face out, right? So I'm gonna let that little theology go and be very glad that my wife's smile does not look like a piano and say, okay, that's what really matters. She brushes her teeth. Mature people are constantly doing that with their theology. What level is this? <laughs> What, is this the toothpaste tube or is this brushing of the teeth? What really matters? And Paul says, what really matters is this in line with the gospel. That's what really matters. And if it's out of line with the gospel, I will have to say something about it because that's what truly matters. So if, for me, when you look at the point of Acts chapter 10, in Galatians chapter two, it's this. If we are taking our plate and moving away from those kind of people, whatever they might be, broken, certain kinds of brokenness get us. It might be race. It might be education. It might be habits. If we are taking our plate and leaving the table and excluding them, then I would say we are out of step with the gospel. And Peter is 20 years into this and he's still struggling with it. He's still struggling with it, prejudices. That's how strong it is. It's fascinating to me because the gospel says this. It doesn't, the gospels don't start in Matthew. The gospel starts in Genesis. Where in Genesis, God says, there's gonna come the seed of the woman who's gonna stomp the serpent's head. And then it expands in 
Genesis 12, verse three, where it says, in him, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So if I exclude groups from that blessing, then guess what I'm doing? Going against the broad arc of the gospel, which says all families shall be blessed. And Peter should have known this because he walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And Jesus, who is he constantly making the hero in his stories? Was it a good Torah observant Jewish male? No. His most famous story is about the good Samaritan. A Samaritan was the hated ethnic group, the cut off, the out crew. Heresy, wrong, everything was wrong about them. And he's the hero over a Levite and a priest. Good Torah observant Jews. Who is the first person that learns that Jesus is the Messiah? A Torah observant Jew? Nope. A five-time divorced Samaritan woman who is currently trading sex for her rent. And it's that woman that Jesus demonstrates that he is the Messiah. He should have got it. But we miss it because we're so tribal. We're so tribal. It's in us. And what I think Jesus is doing in the book of Acts, especially Acts 8 and Acts 10, is actually forcing very different people to sit down together. So in Acts chapter 8, there's this guy named Philip. Man, he is your middle class Jewish male. He's leading this revival. Things are awesome. And Jesus says, leave the revival, go to the desert. And he never tells Stephen why. Because I wonder if he would have actually gone if he knew why. When he gets there, Jesus says, See that sexually altered black man? Go sit with him. Someone he would never normally sit and talk with. Acts chapter 10. Peter. He's a small business owner. He had a fishing business. He understood the weight of the taxes. He would sometimes, Rome could do this. When he is bringing his catch in, Rome could come up and take half of his fish if they wanted to. Right? You know how infuriating that would be? Who wrote, a tack, who wrote a check on Acts, or Acts on April 15th? Were you like, oh, I'm so happy to give my money away? No. And that's to our own government that we actually voted for or didn't vote for, right? And here's this oppressive government that he has to give his fish to. And so what does Jesus say? Well, you're gonna go and you're gonna go talk with him. You're gonna go hang out with him. How you doing, buddy? It's good to see you again. I just saw you. <laughs> I want you to go sit with this guy that's been responsible for the oppression of your people. It's amazing to me. Why does he do that? I read this article this week by George Saunders and he followed the Trump campaign when he was running for president. And he would sit down with both sides of the spectrum, lovers and haters, because they were at every stop. And what he found was this, if he was broad brushed, like on something like immigration, then what would happen is he said, both sides would go into party slogans. Build that wall over here, forget Trump. Not so kindly though, they'd say something else, right? They would immediately go into party slogans. But he said this, when I had a real person, when I had a real person, both sides became thoughtful and compassionate. Because it's really easy to be like, ah, those people, ah. But when you really have a little girl or a little boy or someone whose life is dependent upon it, things change. I think that's what Jesus is doing. Sit down with this person, have a meal with them, talk with them, 
That's what we're supposed to do. So Matt, what do you want? Here's what I want. I want an Acts 11 verse 26 church. A church that looks like the church in Antioch where the believers are called Christian. Because there's people from every socioeconomic, every race, every tribe, they're all coming together because something had attracted them so much and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they said, we want that. And that's bigger than anything else. The gospel is bigger than anything else. But there's something more I want. I want something for you. Because the human heart, I compare it to a tree. A tree is either growing or it's dying. We've all done the tree ring thing, right? Every year a tree grows until it dies and then it stops growing. It decays and goes away. That's the human heart. It's either growing or it's dying and decaying. Or here's another way to look at it. I shared this on Wednesday a while back. Um, I went fishing, went out the Chetco River, went in a little Tahiti, went out, caught some fish. When I was coming back in the Chetco, there were these big rollers, so I couldn't go up on the beach. I had to go up the Chetco River. The tide had changed, so now the tide's coming out, plus the river is flowing, and there was a current like never before. So I got in the Chetco, and I am paddling as hard as I can, and I'd kind of marked a rock, and I paddled for about five minutes, just sweating to see how far I would go. I moved 10 feet in five minutes and I have hundreds of feet to go. And I'm thinking to myself, what do I do? Like, what do I do? If I stop paddling, Japan. <laughs> you gotta keep paddling. To me, that's the human heart. Either you're going upstream or you will go downstream. There's no like, I'm just gonna stay still right here. There's no anchor. There's no stopping. There's no stalling. Everybody in here knows some old guy that hates everybody, right? If you don't know someone like that, it's probably you, just saying. <laughs> they did not start out hating everybody. What they start out doing? Hating one person. And then those people. And they kept adding people to that group because they weren't like themselves. And pretty soon at the end of their life, they don't like anyone but themselves, but there's only one of them, right? That's what happens to the human heart. It's either expanding and growing and, and becoming larger or it's shrinking and it's hateful and it's, uh. so let me read for you. I'm just about done. It's C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, his chapter on charity. And you can get this book. It's free on the internet. It's brilliant. There's a PDF you can download. It's a brilliant book. One of the few authors I'll read twice outside of the Bible is C.S. Lewis. So listen to this. Consequently, though Christian charity sounds a very cold thing to people whose heads are full of sentimentality, and though it is quite distinct from affection, yet, here's the key, it leads to affection. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affection or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not have ever imagined himself liking at the beginning. The same spiritual law 
works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, perhaps, at first ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. Afterward, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become, and so on in a vicious circle forever. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's the human heart. When we become tribal, in versus out, your tribal shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. And that crew will grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It'll be those people, those people, those people. And the church struggles and withers and dies when there's that attitude. It's this Acts 8, Acts 10, that is the catalyst that moves the church out and makes it the incredible transforming force that it becomes. And each of us has to check our own heart. Peter's been in it for 20 years in Galatians. And there's still prejudices in there. 20 years at it. And he has to actually be publicly rebuked by another man. If I drive down the road and I have in my heart animosity towards someone that I see, maybe it's their race, maybe it's their brokenness, maybe it's their activity, maybe it's something. If I have that in my heart, look out. It will not stay still. It will grow. I'll find another group that I don't like too. It'll grow and grow and grow. And I'm out of line with the gospel. So how do you change your heart? Here's how. We come to the table and the table is the best representation of how much Jesus loves you and me. And the Bible says this, we love him because he first loved us. The way that you and I are filled with love, the love that actually let Peter do Acts chapter 10, Philip do Acts chapter eight, the way that we're filled with love is by remembering how much Jesus loved you and me. And that how much Jesus loved us, he left the in crowd in heaven and came down to the out crowd, you and me. That's what he did. And we eat and we drink of that love. What it does is it transforms my heart. And when my heart is transformed, it enables me to go out and transform my world. Because I'm a different person, because my heart has grown larger, I'm thereby enabled to love people better, right? So I would ask, as you take communion today, maybe you just need to be reminded of Jesus's love for you. Wow, how inclusive, how big. Or maybe you need to confess, I have a those people and I know who they are right now. And I've been excluding them and my heart, I've seen it. It's getting more and more hateful and that's not what I want. So Jesus, stop that. Change me. Make me into a lover. Help me to be somebody that treats everybody kindly and find that the more I treat people kindly, the more I start liking people. Change me into that kind of person. Because when you do that, you change a city. We're 1,500, 1,800 people come to this church. 1,800 people that are truly going into our city full of love changes it. 
But the opposite is just as true. I think cities corrode and get really nasty because of hate. That the enemy wants to just get hate into people. And when he does, his job is done. The city just dissolves and corrodes. We're the ones, because we've been loved, that can take our love into our city and transform it. So Jesus, this day, I ask for forgiveness in my own heart where I can look down my nose at somebody without ever knowing anything about them because they look like or act like or seem like the wrong kind of person. Would you forgive me of that? May I be a person that takes the time to get to know them, maybe having a meal with them, hearing their story. And may I be full of the kind of compassion that you had for people. Five time divorced, Samaritan woman who was so thirsty for something, she was trying to cram sin inside her soul and it just made her thirstier. May we be a church known for great compassion, for walking in line with the gospel, using that as the measure. May we walk out of here with feet straightened, hearts enlarged, hands ready to be you in Grant's Pass. And I pray this in your name, amen.